Good morning, good afternoon, everybody. Thanks so much for joining this next episode of In Any Cup Time. We're very lucky today to get Brian Raymond joining us from Unstructured.io, talking to us today about uh, large language models and the future of AI and his story be between the, the, the CIA all the way to AI, going through the, 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 you know, the NSC and, and supporting the White House. So it's going to be a very interesting discussion with Brian today. So if you have questions and you want to get started, we have already so many questions from social media. So start asking questions in the comment section. Just start with a queue so we know it's a question. And, and if you want to join us, we're both on, on YouTube. And, and LinkedIn. So if you see some latency on, on LinkedIn, you can always try on, on YouTube as well. With that, wanted to remind everybody to subscribe to the show, go in anycoftime.tv and put your email so you can get notified every week of the next episodes. And if you've not yet tried Assage, do that on assage.ai. We're bringing GPT to, to government teams, but also uh, financial sector and NATO partners and, and healthcare. So uh, we bring this abstraction layer to access not only OpenAI, GPT-3.5, 4, and 432K, but also Google Bison and Cohere, many open source models. And in fact, we do use unstructured.io technology to be able to ingest PDFs and Excel and Word documents and so on into the, the platform in, in an agnostic fashion. So we're not locked into one model. And so the Brian's technology and all the, the work is done to enable this has been a game changer not just for, for us, but also all of the 4,500 government teams using Assage today and 850 companies. So we'll be thanking Brian again today for all this great work. With that, you know, before I wanted to tell you a little bit about Brian. He's a pretty uh, exceptional guy, as you'll see. He's a founder and CEO of Unstructured. His team is kind of building this first ever extract, transform, and load ETL platform dedicated to large language models. So that's really a whole new set of, of capabilities that are going to come alongside LLMs. In fact, you know, I would argue Assage is also pretty unique space now, bringing LLMs engine or platform to life. So that's interesting how the, the space is evolving. Unstructured has quickly emerged as a critical capability used by so many open source capabilities, including Langchain, with over 500,000 open source downloads in the first year. Before that, Brian helped build another machine learning company, Primer, where he served as the president of, of the federal business. And during the, the four years at Primer, he grew the business, formulated strategies, and, and of course, uh, led the multi-year classified AI ML development projects. Before that, before his time in AI, he's been deep into investment banking working at Harris Williams & Co., where he executed mergers and acquisition transactions across a wide range of industry verticals. And before his time as, as an investment banker, he was in the government where he served as the Iraq country director on the NSC, advising President Obama and, and Vice President Biden at the time on foreign policy matters concerning Iraq and ISIS and the Middle East. He served also as an intelligence analyst and briefer at the CIA. That's where he drafted assessment for the present daily briefings and provided expert briefings to senior officials and led uh, analytic uh, task forces during multiple wars on tools. He has a bunch of fancy diplomas, but we don't really care about that too much here. But it's, it's you know, just to add on top of all the lack of achievements of, of Brian in his career. So 
impressive guy, no doubt, you know, from, from his time from, uh, you know, his PhD to the, to the, to the CIA, to, uh, to, uh, to AI. So, uh, it's interesting how, you know, you can evolve as a, as a person and he's going to tell us all about that. So it's going to be a pretty interesting discussion. Like I said, if you have questions and I see Prescott, Prescott here. Hi Prescott. Good to see you. Make sure you start asking the question in the comment section below because we have already, uh, about 27 of them. So with that, let's bring Brian on. Welcome to the show. Excited to have you. Yeah, thanks for having me. Excited for the conversation today. Yeah. So you're going to bring a whole set of, you know, expertise here, both in, in national security and then, you know, bringing all that stuff into the, the investment bank banker world, you know, which if I recall, you said was was pretty boring, but whatever. <laughs> and, you know, and then you you were pretty excited, of course, like me about all the potential on on the ai side so it's going to be a, a great discussion but before we get started what always to give you a chance to uh, tell us a little bit about your journey sure absolutely well thanks for the uh, the intro and and i think charitably i'd call it a a, a non-linear career path that i've had and so uh, you know i was pursuing a phd in political science and had an opportunity to go do a graduate fellowship with with the CIA and their director of analysis and left at the opportunity. And they said, Hey, at the end of the summer, Hey, you can get a job if you, uh, if you leave and come back and work for us as soon as possible. And I said, done. So my wife and I, we packed up, left California, moved out to DC. And, uh, you know, I had been focused on, you know, comparative politics, democratization, constitutional design, really esoteric, boring stuff, unless you're really into it. And, and I got dropped in the office of Iraq analysis back in 2009 and and didn't know kind of what I what I was in for, but the the next several years at the agency were incredibly rewarding and stretched me in in all sorts of new ways. Had the opportunity to go serve overseas, to to write for the president, to, to brief the White House, State Department, Pentagon, etc. And then that led to a policymaking role. And so I was it was funny I was serving as as a briefer. Iraq was sleepy at the time. I was not thrilled at waking up at midnight. And, and going and prepping, briefing books for six hours and, and every morning. And then on my second day on the job, ISIS took over Mosul. And by the same day, the, ne the week after, I'd just been asked to serve as, as the country director down there uh, at the National Security Council and spent the next year just consumed with the fight against ISIS. And so that was an incredible experience. But around that time, my wife and I decided we wanted to, we missed California, missed the family, wanted to transition. And so I did a... Um, did an MBA, spent some time in investment banking, got out of that very quickly. <laughs> Actually, by way of a former colleague of mine at the age at the agency, she recruited me over to a small company at the time called Primer AI. And I just had an incredible experience there over the next several years, learning about all things natural language processing and also company building. And so Primer is doing a lot of really fantastic work with the IC and DOD, as well as commercial customers. And so spent a bunch of years there. And it was through those experiences that I really had the insight with, with some of my engineering colleagues to go, to go found unstructured, which isn't competitive anyway, but it really kind of sits to the left of, of primer and other companies that folks might be familiar with, like clarify and rebellion defense and ones that are more focused on model tuning and application building. So. So Nick, hopefully that's a, that's a helpful kind of overview on how I got to where I am today. Oh yeah, no, I'm excited. So 
I guess, tell us a little bit about, and you kind of hinted at this a little bit, but how do you end up going from the, the PhD program to the CIA, I guess? Well, you know, it seems like a world ago, but, you know, at the time, the United States was negotiating something called the Status of Forces Agreement with the Maliki government in, in Iraq. There's all sorts of underhanded tricks going on to manipulate not only the electoral rules, but also the constitution there in Iraq, especially by Iranian-backed proxy groups. And so they had a need for someone who knew all the ins and outs of all these different <laughs> esoteric rules. I had learned about them from, you know, transition of Eastern, Eastern European countries from communism to capitalism and democracies after the fall of Soviet Union and some of the East Asian countries. And at the time, Iraq was undertaking a similar transition, but there was a huge tug of war going on behind the scenes and they needed somebody that that could help kind of decode the implications of a lot of the uh, the maneuverings that were going on within parliament and and among the political class there and, and the militias quite frankly and so that was the pull from the cia out of the phd program and into an analytic role there and so i came in focused on um on politics from pure politics and pure like constitutional design because at the time the, the newly minted Obama administration who had just taken over from the Bush administration were fearful that we'd lose our toehold in the Middle East, you know, facing rights of that relationship that, that Iraq could fall if we were to, to leave too quickly. And so, and so anyways, there was a huge interest in not having groups aligned against the United States take over the government and, and make our lives even more difficult than they were. And so that's, that was really the impetus, Nick, to come out of academia and into, uh, into more of a practitioner role. Yeah. And, you know, I, I guess the, the evolution of that, you know, was then you, you moved to a, to a policy making role, you know, which, which to me, you know, writing papers is not too exciting, but, you know, in policy. So, so tell, tell us what made you make, made that switch, I guess. Well, uh, it was, I had just gotten back from a year overseas and had been, you know, supporting overseas operations with the agency and also supporting State Department and others, and had gotten back and was voluntold that I was going to be briefer for the White House and State Department. And I mean, at the time, almost everyone was focused on on Afghanistan, and Iraq was kind of the old story there. And and I remember it was on my second day that news came that ISIS had taken over Mosul, you know, a city of three hundred fifty thousand people, and were moving down the Tigris River Valley towards Baghdad. And the next several days, I remember I was coming in every single morning with maps, and we were. <laughs> walking through everything that was unfolding as the country was on the verge of, of collapse. And, um, and that created an opportunity for, uh, for me and something I wasn't really asking for, but Susan Rice, who is the national security advisor at the time, decided to create, create a role specifically focused on this. And so they said, Brian, stop driving the CIA in the morning, just drive straight down to the white house. And so, and so I was immediately launched in this policymaking role, which is totally, totally foreign to me. And so I had been, been used to the role of an analyst is really to inform policymakers and to and there's this ethos of never ever kind of crossing the line into recommending you know one particular course of action over another that's kind of a sacred line that analysts don't cross to one where I was having to drive um you know not only policy discussions but also policy recommendations for for President Obama and and I felt sure felt like a fish out of water for a while and so that was just an odyssey. I think I had two days off in the, the year that I was there and Christmas and, and New Year's. And otherwise I worked every weekend, every day. And, 
and we we accomplished a lot in that year but it was really a dire situation when we we stepped into it and but had an opportunity to really see how the US government and the interagency formulates policy and then executes that policy once it's once it's decided upon through the you know interagency policy committees and deputies committees and principals committees and NS and full NSC meetings where the president chairs it to to evaluate you know courses of actions and then and then make decisions and then follow follow through on those and so that was that was an incredible window into into that entire different system that you don't really have exposure to in most parts of government. That sounds much, much more fun than writing, you know, (laughs) paperweight. So, you know, I I guess, you know, how old were you at the time? I was, uh, I was about 27 at the time. Yeah. That's pretty amazing. You know, uh, that's real impact. And and so I guess, you know, two days off, I don't know how you did it, but that's must have been pretty tough for, for your personal life. Yeah, my wife was ready after being gone in, you know, Iraq and elsewhere for a long time. And then, and then that, I think we're ready to downshift for a little while. Yeah, no doubt. Did she go with you over there or you, she stayed here? Yeah, she stayed. She was, she's a high school special education teacher. So bless her heart. She was working her butt off back in, back in DC while I was overseas having adventures. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. So for some reason, then you got hit in the head or something, and and then you decided to go into investment banking. You know, you didn't love it. First, tell us a little bit about investment banking, and and I guess you know if if you're like me, I guess you want to get stuff done instead of talking about it. So yeah, or telling people how to do it. So that makes kind of sense. Yeah, I mean, uh, look, I'll, I'm a very probably too too transparent of a guy, but I'll be honest with with, with everyone. I am. Um, I was very concerned about being pigeonholed in my career as like a security person, right? And um, I wanted to, to get a, additional tools and toolkit so that I can broaden the aperture and on the types of challenges that I can go chase after. And so I did the MBA, which is a pretty conservative route, and then saw investment banking, even if it was just for a limited period of time, as an opportunity to really cement this entirely separate skill set that was, you know, orthogonal to everything that I had done up to that point in academia and in and in government to really burnish kind of my business business experience. And so you know, investment banks typically have like three different lines, like sales and trading, um, mergers and acquisitions, and uh, and then advisory. And so um, I was on the M&A side. And so we were, you know, helping primarily large investment firms, you know, do put together one or more companies and roll-up transactions or others. And so I had huge opportunity to just dig into into companies, understand how they work from the inside out, but then also understand the financial side of it as as well. And, and I kind of think of it as like a third and fourth year of of business school that that, you know, I wouldn't it's one of those things where you look back and you're glad you did it, but I'm glad I'm not doing it now. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So I guess what was the bridge between that and the AI world? How did the, the engagement with, with primary yeah. AI start, started? Well, there's this wonderful, I'd say, alumni community of, of CIA, FBI, others all over the country. And there's a whole group of us that had worked Iraq, Afghanistan, Middle East issues together that were out in the, um, out in the Bay Area. And we would do you know quarterly or monthly lunches together. And I started... You know, thinking about investment making is not not a for everything for me, but there's some really interesting stuff going on out here in the emerging technologies realm, and and it was through that that I 
saw what was going on um, in the realm of natural language processing. This is kind of, you know, this is around the time that transformer-based models like BERT and BART and Roberta started started to emerge. And it was a kind of a stepwise increase in the capability of machine learning models and, and, and what sort of workflows you can help automate or accelerate. And I was fascinated by it. I thought this is absolutely incredible. And so I, uh, it was through that, it was through that network that I started looking at, at opportunities. And I looked at some of the big companies at Facebook and Google and others, but it was really at the small companies that it was most exciting to me where really nimble, um, working right at the cutting edge and hyper-focused on, on, you know, a specific customer segment. And that's how I ended up landing uh, at Primer. It was actually in part, you know, through one of those other, one of my colleagues had actually gone and looked at every single company that Inkytel had invested in and started exploring all of those, all of those companies. And then she ended up landing at Primer right after they did their series A. And then I convinced her to bring me on as well. And so that's, that's how I ended up kind of making the, the jump from Harris Williams over to Primer. But why AI or instead of, you know, you could have picked any other space, I guess, what, what made you pick AI? Well, I think in terms of like the arc of, um, like the development from like the late 2000s into the the in into like the last five five years or so it was really like 2008 to 2012 you start started seeing cloud emerge and then you saw kind of big data emerge on top of that but it wasn't until like imagenet around like i think it was like 2011 2012 that computer vision algorithms started started to accelerate and NLP, natural language processing, kind of the cousin of computer vision, has always been kind of five, eight years behind. And so it wasn't until like, you know, 2018, 2020 kind of timeframe that, that, you know, you were able to take the compute infrastructure, you're able to take the data, and then you're able to apply algorithms on top of that in order to um, start unlocking potential. But those are, you know, three of the legs of the stool that a lot of the current capabilities rest upon. Arguably, there's probably like a fourth or a fifth, but it's it's really the compute, the data, and the algorithms. And the algorithms at the time were just starting to catch up. And so for me, that was where the most interesting space was. Yeah, I mean, you're pretty spot on, that's for sure. So, you know, you decided to then move from, from, uh, from primary AI after four great years and create your own company. So that's your first shot, I guess, as an entrepreneur, right? And so what motivated you first to, to say, you know, I'm going to leave a cushy job and I'm going to try to be an entrepreneur. You know, everybody thinks they can do it, but it's, it's not as easy as, as people think. Yeah. I've done it 13 times. So it's easy for me now, I guess. I don't know, but you know, it's your first rodeo here, I guess, compared to everything else you've done. So what was the, the driver behind that move, I guess? Look, I think there's a few different paths that people take. And sometimes there's a, a new technology, right? And they see an opportunity to go make a market around it, right? Ours was the opposite. There was a, a huge problem in need of technology. And so, um, you know, I managed all of our global public sector work. And this is a fantastic, it was just an incredible, incredibly fortuitous time for me to be in that position because a lot of intelligence and defense organizations were making some big bets on natural language processing on their enterprise data. And, and we, you know, at Primer had the opportunity to help them realize it. And what we, and, you know, what our experience was, is that we didn't need another data labeling tool. We didn't need another ML ops tool. Actually, the hardest thing was taking that enterprise data in its raw form, and I'm talking like PDFs and PowerPoints and emails and all sorts of messages, wherever that natural language data resides, 
and getting it into a consistent format that wouldn't break the machine learning pipelines was an absolute nightmare. And it was being done by hand, manual by our teams. One of our large US government customers can't really talk about, we spent two and a half years just taking their data and just cleaning it to a point where we could actually run it through our ML pipelines where they wouldn't break. And so we looked at each other and said, okay, none of the AI ML companies want to go build out all this data cleaning capability. They want to focus on the models and the applications. And then all of the, the companies that are focused on data engineering, on data cleaning, by and large are focused on structured data, columns and rows, right? They're not focused on memos and PowerPoints and things like that. And so this is a really underserved part of the market, but most of the data is here. And so, and so it's shining light that we had, like we were looking at Hugging Face and I don't know how many of the users here are familiar with Hugging Face, but just take 30 seconds on it. It's the world's largest kind of think library of open source machine learning models. And, you know, this time last year, they had around 100,000 users, around 100,000 models there, huge contributor base. And we said, hey, there's all these people that are wanting to use these models for natural language processing, but it's really, really hard for them to take actual enterprise data and use them in conjunction with these models. Let's, let's do the same thing. And, and so we started working on it and, and, you know, I'll get more into like how it's evolved since then, but it was really a problem in search of technology, Nick, that we saw it and we said, Hey, like, this is going to be a massive market and the models are only going to get better. Um, you know, we did not expect chat GPT to be released in November and to have the impact that it did. I don't, don't know if anyone did, but, but I, that's only kind of increased demand for, for capabilities to do this file transformation and to help, you know, take, take data from raw to ML ready easily and quickly. Yeah, talk about a good timing, right? I mean, you can't really get a better better push, that's for sure. When you look at the momentum that GPT has created, I mean, you would never see that pretty much with any other product. So it's, uh, you know, I'm not going to say you're lucky, but you're a little bit, there's a bit of luck, but you, you have to build your luck, you know? Timing's a big part of it. Timing, timing is huge, right, in, in, in being an entrepreneur. So, so you know, you, you mentioned it, right? Ingesting data is hard, right? But, you know, dealing with PDFs and all these other freaking nightmare of formats is, is a nightmare. Yeah. You know, a lot of a lot of uh, pulsers out there, open tools and stuff, a lot of CVs, a lot of issues with it, you know, painful integrations. So how did you solve this at scale, I guess? Well, it's a, it's a work in progress, right? But the way that we're thinking about it is that there's three relevant, there's like this Bermuda Triangle of technology, and we're hoping to be right in the middle of it. Like. One of them are the traditional ETL companies are great at moving data, but really bad at transforming unstructured data. They just haven't invested a whole lot of time and energy there. You have the AIM and ML companies like Primer, whereas app, there's a lot of other ones that are, that are building these pre-processing pipelines by hand. And there's a lot of know-how there. And then finally, you have this whole other segment called intelligent document processing, which, which is a really mature market segment. And they're great at taking say a hundred thousand invoices and extracting all of that data. And they have some relevant technology. And so what we we sought to do was to take kind of the best of all three and then to package it and evolve it for this underserved segment. So for example, for the intelligent document processing, they have these fantastic models, but they require every document to be almost identical, right? So you need a hundred thousand files, but they're all invoices, go process those as cheaply and as accurately as possible. Our, um, yeah, PDFs are the worst by design. <laughs> exactly. On where we're focused, our persona is our typical user has, hey, I have a hundred thousand 
files. There are 25 different file types. Every single one has a different document layout. Help me get to a clean, clean format. And so what we're doing is building our, our file transformation pipelines, our computer vision models, our NLP models around the, that long tail to be able to accommodate that heterogeneity in all the files to, to do that. So we're working on that. We're working on our connectors to move the data, rebuilding them from the ground up to with natural language data in mind. And then also taking a lot of those lessons learned from our time at, you know, building these by hand in order to encode a lot of that into these models from the get-go. And so that you can leave with files that are immediately ready for whatever tasks that you want to do downstream. So that's, that's how we're trying to solve this, solve this at scale and do the long tails is, is that, that focus on the heterogeneity from the get-go and how we're building that into our pipelines. So first, you know, people were asking, you know, with your background, are you hands-on coder too, or you, you rely on the, on the team to do the, the dirty work as they say, or, or what's, I guess, what expertise do you focus on as a, as the, uh, the CEO? So on my end, I am, I am not hands-on in that respect at all. I rely on, on Craig Wolf. He's my head of infrastructure. I worked with him for years at Primer. He's been career, long career before that at Red Hat. So he runs all my software engineering. And then Matt Robinson, former agency for Army, but also great time at Capital One, at Primer, et cetera. He runs all my data science. And so I rely on them and their teams underneath them to build this capability. And I'm I'm really focused on kind of everything else. And so I, uh, you know, focused on, on product, focused on marketing, focusing on sales, and focused on kind of stitching it all together. And so one thing that we're doing right now is like, we don't have any product organization right now. We just have our go-to-market folks and engineering and, you know, making sure that like we're, you know, buttoned up as closely as possible so that we're building something as, as tightly relevant to our user base as we possibly can. And something that came up, you know, just a few weeks ago, Nick, was the, was the vulnerabilities. We've been building an open source to try and make sure that like we have those tight feedback loops with customers. One of them that came up was around the vulnerabilities. And that was something where we were able to quickly take that from, you know, our partner engagement, feed it over to our engineering team and knock that down really quickly. And so that's what we really need to do, especially as a small company, are these really tight feedback loops. Yeah, you've done a great job. I'm always bugging you. You know, that's what I do. So <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, you know. No, that's, that's just... it's incredibly valuable. And like that's what's needed here is, you know, rip a prototype, ship it, get reaction, and then and then spend more time productionizing it if it's relevant, right? What you don't yeah. want is spend six months on a science. No, you don't want to waste time on the wrong, you know. But I'm, I I give I usually give good advice. <laughs> always, always. <laughs> you, you need to listen to me, but everybody else, you can't ignore them. Yeah. <laughs> Just kidding, just kidding. But I know you, you guys all, all kid, and, and you, you have a pretty lean team, right? Are you, you did a seed, right? Or are you doing a seed now? I forgot. A Series A? I forgot. No, we did a seed. We did a seed last summer. And so we raised about 5 million and Bain Capital Ventures led that. We'll have some good news to share here next month, but we're just wrapping up a funding round. And so we've already started hiring some more. And so for a long time, we had about 10 people. And so we're, we're quickly approaching 20 now, almost all of them yeah. engineers almost all of them engineers and really focus on accelerating the development of a full-fledged ETL platform that you could put into production against all of your unstructured data. Right. So that's the series A, I guess. For exactly you. right. Yeah, exactly right. Okay. Very cool. <laughs> Congratulations. So, you know, LLMs, all that space, buzzword, you know, is booming. 
is it is it just a buzzword you know is it blockchain number two or is it is it a snowflake what is it you know you know i was just absolutely blown away there's an mit study done back in march and, and nick i'm sure you saw this one as well where it looked at um you know actual productivity gains on giving users access to chat gpt across a range of different job functions and what that initial study found was that um, a minimum of 37 percent increase in in, increase in productivity without any training on on it and then what was it i think it was a uh, so 37 percent speed increase 20 percent increase in job satisfaction and then goldman sachs and, and a few others have been looking at this and they're saying that 80 percent of the workforce is going to have at least 10 percent of their work impacted with 20 percent of the workforce having 50 percent of their work impacted by these large language models those numbers yeah, by the way, i think they've massively underestimated the actual number but I agree completely. And I think um, I think that we're in for a paradigm shift here that I don't think we've seen anything like this. And I, it's it's I'm I'm cautious about using this language to overhype it. But when you see the productivity gains that are immediately realizable, even with without doing fine tuning on these models, without giving them access to your data, it's pretty breathtaking and on in the range of different use cases for them. When you start considering fine-tuning these models and then also giving them access to your data, which I know that you've been doing with Ask Sage, you unlock a you know an enormous amount of potential. And so I think that's been reflected in the VC community, but more importantly, it's been reflected in the user community. So I think ChatGPT was the like the fastest to a million users of of any any software offering ever. And so um, I think that just speaks to the utility utility of these applications over time. I think it's a little bit more unclear on the on the on the vision side around generative generative visuals. There, it's it's probably more mixed. But I think on the language side, it's so elemental to so many different workflows that that the barriers to integration are far lower. And we started collecting numbers too, and you know we've seen 10x for developers. So way more than the 10% or whatever, I'm talking 10x uh, yeah. on velocity of, of development teams. And we've seen 16x on a, in, a, in acquisition. Yeah. So that is just a mind boggling, you know, number. Those are the ones we train and help, you know, really go beyond the, the basics and the gimmicks, but uh, still pretty amazing. I think it's just the beginning, like you said. And, you know, I think it's been, for me at least, the biggest disruption in my day-to-day -day life by far for from any technology standpoint, particularly in terms of how quickly the impact was felt between the release of the, the capability and when it disrupted my my day-to-day -day life, you know, so that's interesting. Yeah, um, we uh, had an so, opportunity back in, um, back in March to participate in the Bravo 10 Hackathon down at Air Force Special Operations Command with our, our partners, our design partners at USASOC's AI division. And, you know, we were able to deploy, you know, an off-the-shelf open source LLM at the time and use it in conjunction with some mission relevant data and it was just incredible just like with the you know the minimal amount of effort you know the amount of the amount of value that was able to be delivered that i think it, it's it's extremely promising as these move into production and you know you start building some infrastructure around it yeah no doubt no doubt so i guess back to that you know when you when you look at some of your engagements with customers uh, how do you see people integrating large language models into everyday workflow well you know, I think there's there's how they're going to use them, and also some of the bottlenecks that are important to talk about. I think on the on the how, 
I put them into a couple different buckets. I'd be interested in Nick and, and how you're thinking about it as well. But one of them is information retrieval. And then another is, is generation. And so, um, you know, on the information retrieval, that's, uh, that's, that's dangerous right now with like chat GPT, but, but I think there's a huge amount of work going on that has changed this, the level of difficulty of ensuring that what you're getting back is, is something that you can rely on over the last several months with different like retrieval augmented generation, giving access to knowledge graphs, as well as vector databases in order to increase the confidence of, of what it's giving you. But I think that's, that's number one. Number two is like, Hey, you know, I need to draft a TPS report. Please, please, please take this information and draft it in our format. My, uh, my younger sister, she also uh, spent time in government as an analyst. Now she's in the private sector leading teams of intelligence analysts and, and they've had huge productivity gains on generating reports in in their particular format by just by, by utilizing these these models for these generative tasks. And so I think those are kind of the two big areas that stand out to me, Nick. Yeah, I think it's it's interesting how you see, you know, people and like you said, ingesting data. I think fine tuning is going to be the next evolution when you'll pass the prompt engineering limitations, which is pretty far away. You know, I think most people barely scratch the surface yeah. of what you can do with prompt engineering. And and for most use cases you don't actually need to fine tune anything. But you know, when you when you look at, you know, all the use cases between you know, acquisition, software development, cyber defense, you know, intelligence gathering, categorization, sentiment analysis, it's it's just pretty amazing. You know, Jack was asking a question that I think it's it's just interesting to answer now. You know, what kind of security threats do do we feel you know may may happen when you we, uh, we give access you know, to companies' data to those LLMs. I can tell you when it comes to uh, to Assage, the way we do it is is so that there's no the data doesn't get ingested into the LLMs. And so, you know, by definition, that minimizes the risk of, you know, data getting ingested and fine-tuned. And, and then, obviously, uh, then you cannot control access control anymore of that data into the model. So, we you know, we use embeddings and we, we add data on top using labels to prevent, you know, that kind of issue. And that's why I guess so many people use SH. Yeah. In fact, you know, back to your point on the on the volume of, of chat GPT users. I mean, I, I don't know if we've seen many companies sign up, you know, 4,500 government teams in, in four months. So that's another pretty amazing number we got with, with SH back to the piggybacking on the, on the chat GPT buzz, you know, but so what kind of cyber threat do you think about when you, you know, when you see that question, I guess? Yeah, I think that, I mean, Jack and, and for anyone else that's interested in this, there's kind of like two, two options right now. You've got uh, fine tuning. There's companies like Mosaic ML and others that, that help with this, where what you're doing is you're taking your info and you're, and as Nick mentioned, you're encoding it into that model. So you have a base model that's seen, you know, vanilla type data, and now you're encoding your data into it. You might want to do that in, in order to increase performance, you know, in, in certain areas, but, but there are risks that are introduced when, when you do that with being able to back out some of that training data that's been used to fine tune it. The other option, which has gotten to be very popular and it's gotten to be a lot more powerful, particularly in the last like four or five months, there's just an enormous amount of work being done here is, is what you do is you give these models access to like a repository of data to go like it's almost like a library right they can go like check out a book in the library read it and then put it back but you don't it's not you know stored in the, in the model's memory forever and 
and one, it's a lot cheaper. It works pretty well. And, and it doesn't introduce some of these security risks in the same way that fine tuning does. And so that's- Yeah, I mean, the- fine tuning is pretty much then when you fine tune data, you're pretty much stuck in a world where everybody has access to the same model with the same data, which by definition is the opposite of, of need to know and least privilege of, of the government use. So it, that would require you to fine tune on a per per team basis or something crazy. And it's, it's just, I don't know if it's scalable or if it's, you know, cost effective, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. It's expensive. I mean, it'd be in the hundreds of thousands of dollars each time you decide to do that. And so I think the cost is coming down, but what's also scarce are, is hardware availability, especially, um, especially in the government side around GPUs, especially huge GPU clusters that are needed for the fine tuning, but also for inference. And so that's something that you need to bear in mind as well for the model size that you're choosing to use. So. I guess, you know, looking at, you know, what are the top challenges and issues you see with LLMs, maybe that was one of them, uh, but how do you see solving all that? What what else is there? Um, I see a few different things. One, um, let, let's talk a little bit more about hardware here and we're kind of co- coming back to where we started, data, hardware, and algorithms. From the algorithmic side, especially in these open source models, uh, it's been incredible even just between march and june what what's now available in the open source domain for your use but also in the closed source at openai's models continue to improve but so do google's anthropics and others and so i think from the, the algorithmic side like the capabilities there but packaging right the size of those models and the focus of those models is that's going to evolve very quickly and you're seeing this first in the financial services domain with uh, with uh, a lot of the investments that Bloomberg has made, but also now JP Morgan and others that are training domain-specific large language models. The second on the data that they've been pre-trained on at risk right now of like convergence, because everyone's kind of training these things on, on the same thing. And so you're seeing a lot of costs go up and a lot of focus on on more specialized data and different data. And so we could, there's a lot to unpack there, but, um, um, but that's, that, that's been a focus. And then finally, I, on the, on the, um, on the hardware side, these things take a lot, a lot of compute right now in order to, to support a, a large number of users. And so if it's if it needs to be in a customer managed environment or in a classified environment, and there's going to be a large number of concurrent users, you know, the, the need for for cloud infrastructure is is going to go through the roof. Some of like the math that I've been seeing around like GPU clusters and how those scale with users so that it doesn't create like a huge queue and that button, like a huge line that, that backs up of prompts are, is, is actually pretty, pretty going to be pretty challenging to overcome. But I think like, you know, more focus on smaller models that are potentially more, more specialized may be able to, to mitigate some of those challenges over the next year or two. And what else? I mean, is there other things that we're we're not talking about in terms of of top issues you see, or what? What about you know the fact that I guess OpenAI is 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 not open at all, you know, and yep. uh, it's kind of the definition of anti-open now. So the the name is pretty misleading. Uh, yeah. So when you think about you know some of the open source alternatives, there's a lot there, but the fact first there's sometimes some some license you know limitations, but also they don't train it on on as much data and that that has a real impact you know people look at parameters and 
and all that other, you know, criteria of selection. But it's, you know, it's not enough to compare models. You know, uh, when you start asking basic questions and he doesn't know that Elon Musk is, you know, beyond, you know, the uh, the founder of PayPal. I mean, that's <laughs> that's pretty bad, you know. So, yeah. so what do you think about all that that stuff there? I think there's going to be, you've seen Meta open source their models. Maybe they didn't intend to do that. There's a funny backstory there. You see Falcon has just come out, which I think the Emiratis or behind that one, you have Bard, you have, I mean, sorry, you have Bloom with Hugging Face, you have a bunch of these, but there's been over the last six months or so, a pretty big performance gap between what OpenAI has developed and what they have. However, you're seeing that gap eroding and you see it eroding two different ways. One, huge amounts of investments going towards open source models that are under like an Apache license where you can actually use them for commercial purposes. But then two, they're also reverse engineering these models by getting labeled data out of the models and then using that as training data for these other models. There's been some studies that show there's some limits of the efficacy of that approach, but you do see them catching up using some of these creative techniques. However, what you were kind of hitting on with the Elon Musk is, uh, is the recency of the data that's encoded in, in the models and then also just their performance on retrieving that data. And I think what that speaks to is this isn't just a model story, it's an architecture story. And so there's kind of like, you know, a few key players on this. So you have the model right here, you have that library that we're talking about. Most folks are using vector databases right now, but they that that's probably gonna evolve where it's vector and relational databases. And so you store, store data there instead of in memory in the model. And then the technique to allow the model to go and, and and mine and probe that that information so that you have that recency, you have high fidelity, high quality. That dance between those three players is is what we're really focused on at Unstructured is like how do you get the highest quality, clean and recent data into the typically a vector database so that the quality of the inference when you ask something, when you prompt the model to do something, is going to be a lot better and you don't have to go drop two hundred grand on fine tuning those those large models. And tell, tell, you know, I mean, we use Weaviate, you know, because we want to be our gaps and we don't want to have a bunch yeah. of Chinese in, in, in our stack because, you know, some competitors have pretty significant Chinese involvement. So when, when you look at Vector Database, tell, tell people for people that don't know what, what a Vector Database is about and what are, what are embeddings, I guess. Yeah. So the interesting innovation, I mean, this isn't terribly new, but the, the relevancy of this technology has skyrocketed. What ends up happening is suppose you have a, like a news article, you'll not only store the text of that news article in a vector database, but you'll, you'll create what's called a vectorized embedding of it, which is like, you take a paragraph and you feed it through a special model an embedding model, and it'll create a string of numbers. Some of them are like 70 digits long and and those, that number is like a high dimensional space that'll represent all that text inside there. And what that allows is kind of nearest neighbor search. And so you say you do a search on, you know, who are the founders of PayPal? Um, it'll vectorize that, that prompt that you give it, and it'll look for similar data in the, um, in the vector database, bring all of that back, and then it'll analyze all, all that together in order to produce the, uh, the output. And so that technique of this nearest cosine similarity, nearest neighbor search um, has emerged as an incredibly effective way to augment the capabilities of these LLMs as standalone models. And so that's, you know, the, the path to, to being able to deliver that is, is through 
through vector databases and vector search. And so Nick, you said you're using Weaviate. We have a partnership with Weaviate. And, and where we sit on Unstructured, we're right to the left of Weaviate. So raw data comes in, goes through Unstructured, and then we do a baton pass and store the data, typically in like a vector database like, like Weaviate. Yeah, Weaviate CEO is awesome too. So yeah, he's almost, almost as smart as you, but not, <laughs> not everyone can be like you. So. <laughs> so, you know, we talk about challenges and, and how to solve some of those, right? I guess I brought it up a little bit, but, you know, vendor lock-in, uh, open source models coming up, you know, obviously, you know, you look at Google Bison, you look at, you know, Cohere, you look at yeah. uh, OpenAI, GPT-354, you know, what do you see coming next and what, what is the concern? You know, I, I think one of the biggest value we bring as Assage is kind of this abstraction layer, right? This new concept of a, of a uh, you know, GPT platform agnostic to the to the LLM, particularly when you train data on top, I think that gets pretty expensive and complex if you if you start depending on one model. So, what are your thoughts when it comes to vendor looking? What to pay attention to, and then what do you think so far of the open source work? Yeah, I think I mean modular and interoperable is the world that we're gonna we're gonna live in. And so, even if they, to the extent that you have a vendor that packages these things together, they're gonna need to make it modularized so that you can swap in and out different components as they emerge just because it's moving so fast. Now there is a lot of complexity here, but there's also not like compared to where we were a couple of years ago with NLP there, we'd have these incredibly complex pipelines of like dozens and dozens of models that were daisy chained together in order to create knowledge graphs. So structured data that we dump into a relational database, and then you have to write Boolean queries to go query it. It's gotten a lot simpler very quickly. However, it's moving very, very fast. And so you're gonna to need to be able to swap components in and out very easily and rapidly. And so I think that's gonna be a core differentiator. And I think the open source models are are fantastic. I mean, they are unbelievably good given, I mean, backing up a little bit, we're you know just over seven months out from like the release of, of chat GPT. And, and there's models that are, you know, that blow kind of, GPT, DaVinci, 3.5, DaVinci, and others out, out of the water today that are completely open source. And so that that happened that quickly and the amount of compute that, that went into that is, is really a testament to the open source community and some of the companies behind this. And also like the power that's in the hands of individual data scientists and software engineers now um, that it's changing the paradigm where you have kind of front end and developers and software developers that are just building right on top of APIs now instead of needing huge teams in order to do this. So it's getting, you know, better, faster, cheaper. So I think like that's, those are my kind of broad observations, Nick, on, on vendor lock-in and, and the open source models, but it also creates questions that we touched on earlier on like, what are these models been trained on? Right. And, um, and what sort of baggage comes along with them, how much compute's required, et cetera, because things get a lot harder once you move from prototype to production. Yeah, no, that's. That's interesting. You know, I, I have someone that's been bugging me, I guess, on LinkedIn saying that, uh, you know, we're destroying the planet, uh, you know, with all this LLM's consumption of, of, of compute and stuff by, you know, consuming so much power and, and stuff. But I, I always push back, you know, in a sense that one, you know, there's a lot of different things that consume a lot of power. Look, look at Bitcoin. I'm not sure it brings the same value, but, but also, you know, I, I look at the, the, the output and the return on investment and, and the value that people can bring by using it 
which one may argue, you know, if you save sixteen x of time on some tasks, yep. then how much power do you save there? So what what's your take on the on the on the consumption and and all that that stuff? Say one, uh, these things require a huge amount of electricity to run the, the run, run the cloud right that these these rely upon. However, um, if we're take if we're looking at macroeconomics, we've had almost frozen productivity gains over the last two decades, not only in the West but you know in economies globally. We have aging populations. And we got to get ourselves out of this productivity rut, and and this is you know holds as much promise as just about anything else in order to do that. And so, I think there are ways of, one offsetting the carbon, but two, you may not even feel like you said, Nick, because you're able to do so much more with with so little that that it washes out a whole lot of extremely inefficient economic activity that was that, that was being that's been undertaken for the last several decades. Yeah, I was surprised the the person wouldn't understand or put any value to the to the time saved on the on the output side. Seems pretty common sense, you know. I mean, you know, Bitcoin. I would argue compared to this is is a running error of, yeah. of return on investment. You know, so I, I don't get it. You know. Yeah. No, I I agree entirely. All right, so I'm not crazy. That's good. <laughs> so, what do you think will be? We talk about it a little bit, but. You know, I think it's it's going to be drastic. I think it's going to disrupt. You know, people compare it a little bit to the automotive industry and and kind of you know all these robotics. But but again, the cost of these robotics in automotive industry in the automotive industry significant. This costs twenty bucks a month. You know, so you know when I look at all the automation of Assage, you look at the logo of Assage was created by the bot. You know, ninety percent of the UI, the back end, hundred percent of legal. You know, we had a lawyer review the stuff. They made some red line just to pretend to be useful, but did nothing meaningful right you know reset agreement you name it you know all of gdpr so something pretty amazing was our you know gdpr documentation you know and all our nest mapping so we taught you know sage about all the cyber controls we have in place and stuff and he just wrote in in seven hours all of our nest 853 controls you know i had received quotes from uh, three three pao companies for FedRAMP up to three hundred thousand dollars to do this and it cost me 200 bucks of tokens <laughs> um, you know, I, I finished reading it over the weekend and 96% of the, the text was kept as is, didn't change a word. Um, so all that writing of, of, you know, disaster recovery, business, you know, business continuity planning, all the stuff we have to do in cyber was completely automated by the bot, right? So, so legal compliance, you know, you look at, you know, all the marketing and press releases and all that stuff. I'm yeah. talking, you know, I just did a press release with Atomos to announce we integrated Atomos into Assage. And funny enough, you know, they had a bunch of PR people, three, four people on the call on the Atomos side. And, and they're like, okay, who is going to write your quote and, and do all the, the stuff for you? I'm like, yeah, just give me your press release. And I put in Sage and, and he created my quote and I gave it back to them in like one minute. They're like, holy cow, you know, what am I going to do? It's too so, funny. People that say it's not going to disrupt jobs. Yeah. By the way, it's going to create new jobs too, but are they going to be the same people, right? That's the other question. What, what do you think will be the impact on jobs, I guess? Um, it's just, it's funny you bring this up because our, our forthcoming press release was drafted in about 10 seconds by a, uh, <laughs> by a large language model. And, you know, we was having a really interesting conversation with some folks over at the IRS a couple months ago. And they said, hey, you know what we'd really love is is for our employees to be able to chat their internal manuals so they can get um, answers more quickly. And 
took about a couple hours and we scraped all of their manuals, which was about a hundred thousand pages of IRS manuals, pre-processed them and dumped them into Weaviate or Pinecone. I forgot what one of the two. And we're able to just put an LLM on top of it. So you can just ask questions of the IRS manuals. Uh, that's, that's breathtaking, right? On the productivity that you're able to deliver to, to individual employees from an information recall, as well as a, a generation standpoint. And so I think what it's going to do is most immediately um, free them up from a lot of road, road tasks that they're doing today, drafting a press release, right? To higher level tasks that humans are much better at and they're a lot more fulfilling professionally. And so I think that's already happening, especially in, in the marketing domain. I mean, Jasper did this, started kind of started this, this trend in earnest of a year ago with what they've been doing with large language models on marketing copy. And they were able to do that first because that those are mostly generative tasks that don't rely on a lot of information retrieval because the, the large language model engineering community hadn't figured out a lot of these engineering retrieval uh, challenges yet. But now that, you know, retrieval augmented generation, some of these techniques for going and mining data from vector databases is beginning to become more productionized. You're seeing that expand from just generative tasks to informational retrieval tasks. And in the process, it's touching a much wider cadre of, of knowledge workers. And so, um, so one of the most surprising things over the last several months has been that like, you know, prognostications over the last decade have been that, um, that AI and ML solutions are going to put kind of low skilled workers out of jobs first. And what's happened over the last like six to 12 months is exactly the opposite is that a lot of like the more highly skilled folks, the folks that will charge you $300,000 for your nest documentation are the ones that are being impacted most quickly. And so I think that's going to start shifting the value chain around quite a bit and forcing people to redistribute their focus in kind of higher value areas. So when you think of the size of the impact, is it something as big as we, as we ever seen before? I mean, or do you think because of the democratization of the technology and the cost, it's just going to, you know, disrupt much faster than any other innovation we've seen before? I think it's going to be the latter. I, I mean, the competitive pressure and shareholder pressure to adopt and integrate, I think, is 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 going to rise very quickly. I think we're seeing this right now. I mean, we just saw in the CIO Journal and in the Wall Street Journal last last week about the enormous investments that private sector is beginning to make on getting their in-house data in order so that they can utilize LMs. I think what they're also seeing like at the Fed, they're saying, hey, what's going on with this economy here? Is this all being driven by AI-related productivity gains? Is that what's going on here? That's driving some of these odd dynamics where we're seeing just unbelievable growth amid rapid interest rate increases. And I think that's testament to the power of this technology and the impact that it's going to have across almost every aspect of the economy over the years to come. And so Patrick had a great question. He always has great questions, but this is a good one. You know, uh, when you look at uh, obviously the ever increasing amount of required compute and, and model sizes, how can we ever avoid getting trapped into fighting two days war with model trained with yesterday's or last year data? And, you know, I, on my side, you know, of course, I think, the answer to that is all the integration we've done, you know, with data lakes and APIs where we actually tap into real-time data, just like I can ask Sage, you know, about the weather at Dallas Airport and the Meton and, and get that from the FAA APIs and then the GPT model interprets, you know, the, the encoding of, of the Meton. But uh, 
you know, it, it's seamless and it's real time. So do, do you do you find that to be kind of the answer where we don't ingest the data, but we tap into it in, in real time and, and effectively GPT becomes kind of the, uh, the querying model, you know, converting a plain text question into a query or a SQL query or Elasticsearch or whatever. We've done that with DEA actually recently. Is that kind of where you th see the, the future going? I think that's, that's where we have to go. The path to getting there is going to be really hard. And I think Craig Martell over at CDO has been focused on this a lot lately. And some of the messaging that he's put out about getting the Pentagon's data house in order. And I, and I don't think it's just the Pentagon. I think it's every large organization is that like, in theory, it's easy to kind of hook up these models to those real-time sources. But in reality, there's a lot of data that's easily accessible via API. And then there's a hell of a lot of data that is very, very, very difficult to deal with. And that's probably incredibly relevant. And so, you know, we've been touching on this with some of our Air Force partners and some of our SOCOM partners and others. And that's where we're focused at Unstructured is that like, this is a key bottleneck here. And that like, you're going to have about 20 or 40% of your data that's that's easy to work with and that you're, that, that you're going to integrate first. But that not that that might not be the right picture. That would be the, the right data for the for the question that you're asking. And so what you need is like all of the knowledge that you're generating, all that data that you have to be able to utilize that in conjunction with the models. And getting that data house in order is gonna be an enormous challenge over the next next several years. And I think that's gonna be critical to being able to actually realize the full potential of these models. Yeah, that's that's a good point, no <clears throat> doubt. So now you know switching gear a little bit what do you think is going to be the uh the next big thing coming up i think it's going to get boring here for a little bit and i bit of a contrarian here because a lot of folks have been focused on on multimodal models and others and i think you know there's going to be can a you, lot can of can you tell people what that means so they understand yeah. yeah and multimodal is really being able to to transcend from like it provide a prompt that says you know provide me a logo for my, you know, for this new ask stage capability that we're we're developing, but also going the opposite direction is giving it, uh, a, you know, an image and asking it to describe it in in text form, and and being able to seamlessly go from image to text or, or sound or video, right? These various mediums. Right, it's text, voice, image, which which obviously text brings the most value. The rest could be gimmicky, but depends, totally. you know. I think that. And schema, schemas could be good, right? Schemas and, and stuff where you have analysis of data or whatnot, you know, but it's a little bit different, I, you know. I think the I think what we've seen are some incredible initial capabilities, but there's going to now be kind of, we'll go through this typical trough of disillusionment. I don't think it's going to be as deep of a trough, but on moving it into a mature production state, you're going to have a range of challenges that you're going to go through in order to actually realize the the excitement that we're all feeling today. This is kind of like with electric cars, right? Like, what do you need? You need charging networks, you need range, you need reliability, you need fit and finish, all of these things. And like when Tesla first rolled out, like the Roadster, what was it, 15 years ago, a lot of excitement. But then, you know, it took almost a decade after that to be able to use it for everyday purposes and for it to live up to a lot of the hype. I think for this, you're going to need the compute, you're going to need the data, you're going to need all the ops, you're going to need uh, a range of different pieces to mature and integrate together so that you can deliver that experience to users across a wide range. I think what you're doing with Ask Sage and, and what a bunch of others are doing are, are pioneering a lot of this, but you're going to 
run into limitations that you can't control, especially around cloud compute infrastructure, you know, the models and what they've been trained on and some of these other pieces that are going to need to come together in order to deliver that overall capability. So I think that's that's going to be the the big thing is getting over those humps so that you can put this in the hands of every single one of your knowledge workers. Yeah, no doubt. That's interesting. So I guess obvious question. I ask it to everybody, but we kind of talked about all this the whole the whole time. But how do you see AI in general, you know, change the world? What kind of big examples would you have for people in the audience that could be tangible enough to get people excited or scared or, or both, you know? I think some of the you know, we've talked about, you know, you know, land of acquisitions, these types of, of things, but also on like the education side on being able to accelerate um education. I think uh we're just in the very early innings here. And I think education is going to be completely upended, not only for like, you know, kids, like I have small kids that are going to be using this from the get-go to um, seasoned professionals who are looking to, to bolt on new skills, especially how this is beginning to integrate with multimodal video. I think that, you know, if we kind of close our eyes and wake up 10 years from now, the education landscape is going to be completely remolded in a really positive way to break down barriers to, to obtaining new skill sets for, you know, folks, whether or not you're living out in the middle of nowhere in Wyoming, or you're in, you know, living in Manhattan, you'll have democratize, it'll democratize access to a lot of this, um, a lot of this information. Yeah, interesting, interesting, no doubt. Well, I guess, you know, what, what scares you the most about, about the use of, of AI today? Are you are you in that boat of telling people to pause for six months while China kick our asses? Or what's, what's, I know you're not, but no, uh, I'm firmly. Yeah. I think um, it's funny. There's you know every few months there's some scary article that comes out in Vox or Wired or wherever about some you know some new AI capabilities that are going to to take down the that are going to you know scare the hell out of everybody and and lead to Skynet. But then when you get close enough to it, you're like, this stuff is really hard to just make work for narrow use cases, let alone general intelligence. And so I think, look, I'm more scared about us not getting it right and getting stuck as we have in other kind of technological domains than I am about kind of runaway capabilities in this domain. I think like, like, you know, a great example of this was, you know, a few weeks back when some Air Force colonel misspoke. And said that you know the AI, you know, decided to back to target target the you know target him because he was telling it to deviate from the mission plan, but that that wasn't actually the case at all. I think that those are are really unhelpful cases because in reality, these things are so difficult to get work in the first place that we're a long ways off from being being needing to be worried about about those. Yeah, uh, it's not gonna happen anytime soon. But but we, it doesn't mean we don't pay attention though, right? But but yeah, that's right. Yeah, absolutely. Especially like how, how quickly you hand over autonomy for these things. Right. Uh, but yeah. it could be complacency fast, though. I mean, you could see it flip pretty quick, right? In 10 years, you could see people make small mistakes that, that end up compounding and creating the next guy in it. I guess it's it's possible, totally. you know, but it's, yeah, it's it, not it going to be tomorrow. Opportunities for mistakes. Like if you have drone swarms and things like that, that might be protecting, you know, aircraft carriers and things like that. You know, the opportunity for a misstep is probably pretty high. And so you'll need to like keep an, a very close eye on how you're operationalizing those technologies in those settings. Right. So I guess what keeps you up at night? <laughs> I mean, really on, on my end, not a lot in the broader industry. 
for what we're doing here at Unstructured, make sure that we're building something that people love, that, that solves real problems, that makes their lives easier, and that delivers capability. It's easy to say that. It's hard to execute it. And so that's something that just, you know, I'm paranoid about and, and you know, we're all 100% focused on. But from a technology standpoint, it's mostly excitement. It's, it's not a lot keeping me up at night. <laughs> what, uh, what about... Uh you know, the, the balance between open source and, and pay products. Are you, are you worried about, uh, you know, not finding that right balance and, and find a way to, to market the product. And are you, you know, I feel like giving a lot of value into the open source community, which is, which is great, but you know, how do you find that balance to make people pay yeah. for the product? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great point. And for listeners, you know, we're completely open source right now. So you can go on, GitHub and get access to our, our Python libraries and our containers. What we want to be right now is really close to the folks that are prototyping and deliver initial capability. We also want to do through that is we want to help them graduate from prototype into production. And so what that means is that if you're a large organization, can you schedule, um, you know, unstructured to go grab the data at certain times from the right places that have the right user permissioning to process them in a way that's extremely compute efficient and then to seamlessly integrate it in with whatever sort of architectures, existing architectures that you have. And so where we're going to be focused in our, in our next phase of growth is around all of that productionizing some of these core capabilities. So we focused a lot on file transformation to get to clean data, but around all of the software engineering around that, that you need, if you're, you know, a Pfizer, a JP Morgan, a Walmart that needs to do this at scale across large divisions. That's going to need a, a lot of software engineering around it in order to make that, that that workable. And so we want to jump out to the lead there and be, you know, the vendor of choice for production ETL for LLMs. Yeah, no doubt. Interesting. That's that's a tough balance, you know. I know companies struggle with it. Just don't forget that you can't just keep raising money. You need to break even and, and make profits. So, you know, if, if these are not telling you this enough, by the way. Do, what did you see in terms of impact with the, you know, the economy on your on your latest round? Did you feel like it was tougher questions, or what did you feel? Yeah, I mean, um, tougher questions, but also, I mean, it's, it's it's hitting kind of larger companies harder right now. I mean, for us, it being in this large language model ecosystem right now, uh, that it has so many tailwinds. It's more around how are you going to build something fast enough to become the default in this category. And that's widely used by a range of users. And so it's it's more about speed to market and the quality of what we're building because there's so much confidence that this is gonna be an enormous market that will be able to turn the corner on monetization. That's easy for investors to say, it's harder as a yeah, CEO. I think that's a little bit, it's easy to be adopted by everybody when you're free, you know, so. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. So we'll, we've, I guess we've seen Facebook do a good job at it, you know, but. Uh, you know. Yeah, there's some that have done a great job. There's others that have been cannibalized by it. I think yeah, Docker. Right yeah, Docker didn't go do so well. Okay. Yeah. What's interesting is that just the uh, the culture and like the ethos around data scientists. Uh, they're used to free. They're used to open and interoperable. And and so we need to get to them as fast as possible because that's our core persona. We're, you know, whereas like Assage is more focused on like the knowledge worker and the individual practitioner. Right. We're, um, they don't care about paying. Yeah, our 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 core persona is a data scientist that's doing data engineering work, and so we need to get in their hands and make sure 
that we get that early product feedback so that as we're building something that's licensable platform, uh, that it's as, as relevant and as impactful as possible. Yeah, that's a good point. All right, so a couple of questions and then we'll let you uh, say the parting words and I'll, I'll remind everybody of the next episode before that. But Rascal uh, was asking that, you know, he was saying the Air Force released seven operational imperatives, you know, one is defining, optimized, resilient, uh, basing, sustainment, and communication in a contested environment. Where do you see AI and LLMs being relevant to improving con contested logistic and resilient basing? How can Unstructured help with disparate data sets from logistics platform used by different military branches that don't talk to each other effectively? This is a great, great quest question, Prescott, and a really important topic, I think. You know, from an AI standpoint and, and LLMs, it's it's going to be most important to get all the right data to the algorithms that are going going to start making recommendations for distribution of assets. And so, in some ways, the LLMs will be in service of of you know algorithms that are are from a mature segment of like systems engineering. And so, the trick is how do you get audio comms? How do you get text messages? How do you get emails? How do you get written docs, et cetera, rapidly into a digitized format, uh, into a structured format where you can then bring them to bear on some of those system engineering models that are that are more mature. And so I think there's a lot of promise there on on integrating, on utilizing these types of capabilities to the left of uh, of those those algorithms that are used for, for distribution of assets. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, all right. So couple of things. Next Tuesday, 1 p.m., we're going to have a, another amazing guest, Peter Shu, otherwise known as Sticks, who worked uh, a lot with my office in the Space Force and Air Force, but of course did an amazing job pretty much re revolutionizing defense space with integrated warfighting networks. And so he's going to come to us, talk about these integrated warfighting networks he's been building which ties back to some of the, the problem that Prescott and you just mentioned in terms of connectivity and all that stuff. So that's going to be interesting to listen to next Tuesday, 1 p.m. Eastern. Don't miss it. With Tex is probably the most accomplished literary person that's done the most the most tangible outcomes that I've had the chance to, to meet and work with. So he's an awesome guy. Immigrant too, like me. So always interesting to see the perspectives there. We'll talk a little bit about that. So don't miss it next Tuesday. Want to give you, Brian, first, thank you again. I think you, you gave the audience not only a great rundown of, you know, the out of possible and, and what you guys have brought to life. If they want to learn more, they can go to unstructured.io. You also have a GitHub, you know, github.com slash unstructured-io. You have this video link on, on Bitly to have the overview uh, and the chat, you know, it's been scrolling here at the bottom of the screen. So go check out the video. It's it's great way to uh, to understand what uh, what you guys are bringing to the table. You also have, uh, you're on Slack, right? Where you yep. have uh, your whole team there answering questions. So people go check that out. Uh, we use it. We love it. It's great. It's, you know, they're very quick at... Uh, addressing any issues or answering your, your questions. So it's pretty awesome. But over to you, Brian, for the for the parting words. Nick, just thanks for having me on. Thanks to everyone for the great questions. I think parting words kind of align with the last question that I see here, which is think about your data. Oh, yeah, I think I the first, that one. Yeah, the first right, step here as you're engaging with LMs, as you're engaging with assay or other capabilities is 
think about your data and think about making investments in your data so that your organization, your team, your, your office is, is AI ready from a data standpoint, that's going to be a critical path to realizing the capability of these models. But th th thank you all for the uh, great engagement today. Good to, to see everybody and stay safe and uh, keep up uh, the great work. So our kids have a fighting chance at winning against Shana 20 years from now. Stay safe, everybody. Thank you. Thanks.